welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the life and legacy of President Ronald Reagan, the last transformational U.S. president whose regime we are still living in. Between his neoliberal economics, anti-government ideology, and white supremacist appeal to authoritarians, he did more to shape the last 40 years of the politics of the country and conservative movement than anyone else. Clips today are from Make Me Smart, On the Media, The Tom Hartman Program, The Real News, The Professor Buzzkill History Podcast, and The Majority Report, with additional members-only clips from Why Is This Happening and The United States of Anxiety. By the way, the midterms are right around the corner, so be sure to check out the show notes for our Midterms Minute section highlighting key races across the country and how to get involved. Today's focus is on toss-up house races in California, New York, and Ohio, and open or new seats that are leaning Democrat or Republican. Remember, voting is not enough, so get involved and help get out the vote. I think we need to define terms, right? Because these terms get batted around a lot. So Reaganomics, trickle-down, supply-side economics, in a nutshell, what are we talking about? In a nutshell, you're talking about the 1981 Economic Recovery Act. If there's a singular statement of Reaganomics, that's it. So it had a whole bunch of stuff that was meant to fit together and kind of did, but in a really peculiar way. So the first one was tax cuts for business. There'd been a big campaign in the 70s because of the effect of inflation, saying that investment was lagging, that America needed more capital formation. So big tax cuts for business. Then there was the whole influence of Art Laffer and the Laffer curve, mm-hmm. and that was equivalent for individual income. So cut the top end, the top end of the uh, tax distribution so that it will trickle down to everybody else. But there was a whole bunch of other stuff that was going on in there as well. We forget about compensating for this, but also blowing out the deficit in Reagan's period was a huge defense buildup. This is the second Cold War. This is the second showdown with the Soviet Union. There's also a lot of action on deregulating business while re-regulating labor, and particularly uh, the PATCO strike of 1981 with the air traffic controllers. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. And then finally, what was going on was Volcker running the Federal Reserve because he jacked up interest rates to, in nominal terms, 20% in order to crush inflation. And that caused a big recession at the same time that Reagan's doing all this stuff, which blows out the debts and the deficit. So you wouldn't think that this would go down well, right? You'd think this would be a footnote in history, but it ended up having real staying power. Why was that, do you think? I mean, it it sounds like we are right to identify this as a pivot point for a lot of things that have happened since why did it work? It worked because he got lucky. I mean, that's the <laughs> thing about you know, the Gipper or whatever yeah. he was known as. I'm just about <laughs> old enough to remember. But he really got lucky, and he got lucky in two ways. Uh, the first one was that the disinflation of the economy, getting rid of all that inflation, it was really brutal, but it was actually done very, very quickly. So inflation dropped, and at the same time, they deregulated financial markets. Suddenly, there was a tsunami of credit that was available in the economy that really hadn't been available before. And then the 
third way they got lucky was America's running big budget deficits and also big trade deficits. But they get lucky because when they deregulate finance, interest rates still stay quite high in America vis-a-vis the rest of the world. So Japanese Mm -hmm. corporates, remember all the big Japanese corporations that were buying Pebble Beach Golf Course and all this nonsense, right? They're getting 2% holding their money at home. They're getting 5% just dumping it in the United States. They're the ones that start to buy the bonds that finance the debt and the deficit. So that's how Reaganomics gets lucky in the in the kind of mid the middle part of the 1980s. Morning in America was definitely helped. Well, right. No, exactly. And so Reagan goes to the polls in 84, Morning in America. How does what's happening at that really macro level trickle down, pun intentional, to the average person? Mm-hmm. Why, why even today do you hear people saying, oh, yeah, Reaganomics was great, man. I loved it. And you're like, well, it really? is a, it's a peculiar thing because, I mean, we know that it didn't work. I mean, there's been study after study now. The, there's one that uh, you can go just type in the following, trends in income 1979 to 2020 <laughs> done by the Rand Corporation. Not exactly a left-wing think tank, right? Yeah. And these guys estimate that $43 trillion trickled up from the bottom 90 to, to the top 10%, and pretty much none of it came back down. So when you've got that big disconnect, what explains such a disconnect? I think part of what made Reaganomics work and what made the whole kind of neoliberal revolution, if you want to call it work, is that it accords with everyday's common sense. So a good example of this is the whole sort of notion that like, well, when you run the government, it's like running a, yeah. like a household budget. And if you spend too much, you need to cut spending. Well, you know, that rather ignores the fact that I don't get to issue my own currency. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as a Kai Risdell bond market, <laughs> Not yet. right? Nobody, nobody in the Wood family is importing immigrants and taxing them for five generations. But because all that <laughs> stuff accords with common sense, it's an easy sell. And it's particularly credible when the party of business is the one who's selling it. So I think it's the way that it, it's not about the facts in the world. It's about the kind of models we have in our head and the way the economy works that made it really work for Reaganomics. So is it fair to say, as you were talking, I wrote this list, right? So it sounds like you are describing an Economic Recovery Act. Hold on. I have a quick question uh, because I wasn't that old then. What was the economy <laughs> recovering from? Oh, really? ah, great question. It was recovering from the 1970s. 70s, yeah. Yeah, and the 1970s had two things going on. One was a huge amount of labor militancy across the world, strikes everywhere, right? And this is the the point at which labor's share of national income hit its all-time high. Conversely, the way that business was dealing with this was pushing on in prices. How do you keep paying for higher wages? You push on in prices, and that was generating the inflation that we saw in the period. Now, if you're a businessman and you expect to get 5% real rate of return and inflation goes to 10%, you might as well take the money around the back of the house and burn it. And that's what basically brought a huge mobilization of business groups together in the late 70s to push these ideas, the idea of capital formation crisis, the idea that we need tax cuts to stimulate the economy. This didn't just spring out of nowhere. It came out of a a concerted business campaign in reaction to both labor militancy and inflation's effects on profits. All right. Huh. So, okay. Well, yeah, that seems correct. super relevant yep. to the moment. But uh, can I can I yeah, do, yeah, yeah, can yeah, I do yeah, a twofer? Right. Yeah. Because it seems like okay. So as a result of this recovery act, it seems like we have set the stage for the declining power of labor, which we've seen since in stagnant wages, for the Check. increase in household debt, Check. right? Uh, rising income inequality, mm-hmm. few fewer rules and more profits for banks. Oh, yeah. A smaller social safety net and the rise of the military industrial complex. 
I think you just explained the whole thing. That's exactly where it came from. If you're going to set up a tax structure that siphons 90% of it up to the top and doesn't really trickle it down, the only way you're going to have any semblance of maintaining consumption for most people is a massive expansion of credit. And the greatest trick that's ever been played by finance is to tell everybody what they call an asset is actually a liability. Hmm. Right. So when you mm-hmm. borrow from finance, right, you think that that's a liability, an asset for them. No, that's a liability. Right. So they want the income stream from your payment. That's their asset. So when banks get big, what it means is they're lending an enormous amount of money to the economy. And we saw what happened with that when it finally became unstuck in 2008. So that's just one part of the story. But yep, that's exactly right. It all comes out of this period. All right, so let's let's keep going chronologically here and 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 uh talk about how the mindset shifted, right? So Reagan 1980, 81, 84 goes morning in America, Clinton gets elected in 92 and in the 96 Clinton says the era of big government is over. Reagan has almost from the grave at that point. I mean, he was still around, but he has co-opted maybe the most liberal president since like FDR. Absolutely. And exactly the same thing happens in Britain five years later when Mrs. Thatcher declares that Tony Blair is her best pupil. (laughs) Right. Mm. So what is it about Mm. these center left parties that they got trapped in this kind of right wing economic box? Well, part of it was because uh, there were real benefits. If you you think about Walmart's slogan from a few years ago, the prices keep falling. Mm. Why? Because it's all made in China. So if you think about your real wages, what you can effectively buy, if the prices of stuff is falling, in a sense, your wages are going up, even though no one's giving you a pay rise. So there were certain benefits from integration, globalization, etc., that kind of masked the inequality that was there. But Clinton himself got stuck because when he came in, you'll remember he wanted to do two things. First one was a stimulus just like Biden, much smaller. The second one was a BTU tax, an actual thermal tax on basically energy use, the first green tax. Hmm. And what happened was Alan Greenspan essentially sat him down and said, don't even think about it. Because if you do, I'll jack up interest rates, you'll have a recession and you're done. And that's explicitly what was what was said uh, to Clinton, 92, 93. And he backed away from that, very quickly had no other ideas, was regarded as a lame duck president, and then mounted the campaign in 96, which got him back into power. But in a sense, he had no agenda. And his instinct was to cooperate. So what did he cooperate on? Welfare reform. Mm-hmm. So you end up with the irony that this two-term Democratic president is the one who not only the era of big government is over, in the same speech as we are ending welfare as we know it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Which is where we should probably acknowledge the the baked-in racism. In these policies, right? That, that at, that in, and all of the rhetoric and even welfare reform ultimately targeted people of color and in Reagan's case, pretty explicitly. Well, there was the the famous metaphor that Reagan bandied around of the welfare queen who was living Mm -hmm. off of benefits by having excess children and driving around in a Cadillac. And there was no doubt that the, the, let's say, the the cosmetic on that one was not a, a white person. Right. That was absolutely mm-hmm. true. And you see this with criminal justice in the period all the way through to the Willie Horton saga, the whole thing. So, yeah, I mean, there's always been a, a, a racial undercurrent to these reforms. And why do you push on that one? Because it's an easy target. You push mm-hmm. on that one because essentially that community is captured by the Democrats. And if you push on that one, you'll, bo- get, you'll get support for it in many quarters. But it's very hard for that community to push back.
Stoicism of the Powerful, once the stuff of old boy networks and silent oppressive infrastructures, is lately out in the open, but it has a long, sordid history, even in the White House. Consider this conversation between President Richard Nixon and then-California Governor Ronald Reagan, covertly taped by the disgraced president in 1971. The two were discussing a U.N. vote in which delegates from African countries had gone against American interests, voting to recognize the People's Republic of China, not Taiwan, as the legitimate holder of the U.N. seat. Last night, I tell you, to watch that thing on television, that I, that I did. Yeah. In case you missed that, Reagan called the African delegation monkeys who were uncomfortable wearing shoes. As revealed in The Atlantic last week by presidential historian Tim Naftali, that snippet had for years been withheld by the National Archives, apparently to protect Reagan's privacy, presumably because he was unaware that the conversation was being recorded. To Atlantic staff writer Adam Serwer, Reagan's remark was not only racist and condescending, but emblematic of a certain just-between-you-and-me white supremacism that persists to this day at the highest levels of government and continues to contaminate American democracy. Adam, welcome back to OTM. Thanks for having me. Now, one reaction to the recording, and it was mine, was like, duh, is it such a revelation that Reagan ascribed inferiority to blacks? I don't think it's surprising, but I do think it's important to have on the record in part because there is a kind of historical amnesia and nostalgia about the extent to which white supremacy has been a governing doctrine of the United States for most of the history of the United States until 1965. You know, this idea that somehow we're very far removed from this and, you know, the sentiments expressed by the current president, Donald Trump, are something new and terrible is actually false. The context was not domestic racial turbulence. It was geopolitical. Communist China, the People's Republic of China, had spent a lot of money and time trying to woo African states to its side and, and using a lot of propaganda to criticize the United States for hypocrisy on civil rights and colonialism. And all of that paid off, and it paid off in part because Nixon and Reagan were incapable of seeing these African nations as states with interests of their own and politics of their own. This idea that only white people are fit for self-government is something that has plagued American democracy since its inception and continues to today. In The Atlantic this week, you looked at a piece published in Horace Greeley's New York Tribune. Now, Greeley was a Republican, which at the time was the party of Lincoln. And the Democrats were actually the avowed racists. This piece was almost exactly a 100 years before the Nixon-Reagan phone call. And the echoes are kind of eerie. Greeley, who had been a staunch Republican and abolitionist, but who was a conservative, wealthy Northern Republican, his newspaper published an exploration of the Reconstruction government in South Carolina, where at the time, I believe black people had a majority in the state. The article, without fully endorsing racist white Democrats' perception of the Reconstruction government, 
basically substantiated it by saying that black people were too ignorant and too debased to really govern the state and that giving them the vote was a disaster and that it would be best if the status quo ante returned where wealthy white men were controlling the state and its politics. And that helped usher in a backlash against Reconstruction in the North, which led to Greeley running against Grant on a platform of ending Reconstruction. And Greeley's doctrine that the government should not interfere on behalf of working people, interfering on behalf of industry, which it had done for a very long time, was perfectly fine, turned that version of the Republican Party towards the one that it became today. So the party of Lincoln was substantially becoming the party of Greeley, with increasing calls for disenfranchisement of newly enfranchised black voters and the marginalization of freed men. You know, it kind of sounds like the modern-day Republican strategy of suppressing the black vote and dismantling what's left of the welfare state. Is it a fair comparison? I think you can certainly see echoes of that doctrine. You know, the, there's a one of the things people say is that the parties uh, have switched places. But I would say that it's more accurate to say that who the parties were in the 1870s, they followed their doctrinal beliefs in unexpected directions. So the Republican Party separated from its working class black base in the South, became much more of a party of capitalism. And the Democrats, who were kind of a party of class war, at least elements of it, were when black voters joined their coalition, they abandoned their racism and became something else. I think that you can see echoes of this idea that minorities are incapable of sort of objectively evaluating their political choices in rhetoric about black people being on the quote unquote Democrat plantation. In fact, back in the 1870s, Democratic newspapers were describing black voters as being on the Republican plantation, that the language is almost identical. Um, but this sort of idea that certain voters need to be excluded from the political conversation because they're too unsophisticated or too easily manipulated by so-called free stuff has really been a part of the political conversation for a long time and still is. Now, I've got to ask you this. From that one phone exchange between Reagan and Nixon, in your piece, you extrapolate a whole narrative of condescension, racism, miscalculation, and cynicism that certainly seems to scan to me. It all makes sense. Uh, the dots all seem to connect, but really rests on a thin read of evidence, which is a snippet of a phone call. Is the smoking gun tape finally unearthed at the National Archives? Is it enough of a foundation to draw the conclusions you've drawn? Uh, no, it's not, which is why I drew on both of their public records. I mean, Nixon consciously embraced a strategy of white division in order to win the election. His strategists have spoken at length about that. Reagan endorsed in 1964 a candidate who opposed the Civil Rights Act and ultimately the Voting Rights Act, which Reagan did as well. You can see throughout their lives, Nixon and Reagan not just saying offensive things, but taking actions that reflect the worldview that is expressed in that phone call. And now comes Trump, who is just taking it to a whole new dimension. Trump is 
only expressing in public what many, many American presidents believed in private. And I think it's important for Americans to come to terms with that reality because it's the only way to move on and change for the better. Today's episode is sponsored by Mint Mobile, and after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless, if we have all learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. Except when there's not a catch, which is the case with Mint Mobile's premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month. And I know, I know, it's hard to believe. Why wouldn't the service be worse if it's so much cheaper? Well, Mint's service is provided by literally the same towers and network providers you'd be using if you paid one of the big guys way more. The secret sauce is that Mint Mobile is only online, so they don't have to pay for retail stores and tons of office space so they can pass those sweet savings directly to you. Amazingly, I was already using a discount mobile carrier before I heard about Mint, and they still managed to save me money because their plans offer more data than my old one, so 15 bucks is all I need to spend now. Bring your own phone and your own phone number to use with any Mint mobile plan, all of which come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash best. That's mintmobile.com slash best. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash best. The way that, that Trump and the Republicans sold us their $5 trillion tax cut for rich people with a, a trillion and a half of it in the first year, uh, borrowing that money from the federal treasury in our names, and then passing that money out to the billionaire class in the United States, particularly those billionaires who have funded the Republican Party. Uh, you know, invest a few hundred million dollars in the, in the GOP. I think the Kochs put in, what, 600 million in the last election, maybe 400 million, whatever it was. And, you know, they probably got over a billion dollars in tax cuts. That's not a bad return on investment. You know, buying politicians now in the United States is the best investment you can make. So, you know, the billionaires buy the politicians and the politicians come out. And this this is really started with Reagan in a big way. Reagan came out, you know, he was he was working for back then, you know, the, the currency was a little stronger. So they were multimillionaires, not billionaires or multi-hundred millionaires. But, uh, you know, basically they owned Reagan and they owned the Republican Party at that time. And they said to Reagan, hey, let's let's create this thing we call trickle down economics. Now, interestingly, Warren Harding ran on this same thing in 1920. On trickle down economics. Uh, at that time, it was called horse and sparrow economics. Because in 1910, most people rode horses. They didn't drive cars, right? And uh, everybody who rode a horse, owned a horse, knew that horses eat oats. Their digestive systems are not 100% efficient. And so horse poop, horse patties, uh, the sparrows love to go peck through them looking for seeds, for, you know, undigested bits of oat that... The sparrows can eat. And so literally the exact same economic philosophy that Ronald Reagan rolled out as brand new discovery in 1981 
was what Warren Harding, or 1980 when he was running for president, was what Warren Harding ran for president on in 1920, the horse and sparrows theory, that if we feed more oats to the horses, there will be more poop for the sparrows. And so, you know, in other words, put money in at the top, cut taxes. Warren Harding, 1920, ran on the whole idea. You cut the top tax rate from 95%, which is where it was in 1920, down to 25%, which is where it was by 1922. Cut that top tax rate down. And as a consequence of that, uh, you know, the sparrows are going to get rich, or the sparrows are going to get a lot more food, and, uh, you know, who cares that the horses are getting really, really big. So, you know, Reagan just said, you know, it'll just trickle down. You know, if, if it all trickles down, then, you know, we, well, I say we produce a nation of peons. You know, it should be called a golden shower. But in any case, this was the, philo- the philosophy that they were trying to sell. It is not giving money to rich people that builds an economy. What giving money to rich people does is it exacerbates inequality. It, it makes the rich richer and it makes working class people poorer. That's all it does. The horse and sparrow theory was, shall we say, horse poop. And so was trickle down. But the Republicans are still trying to sell trickle down. In fact, if you go back to 1944, this is David Leonhardt, a great piece in yesterday's New York Times, American Capitalism Isn't Working. And he points out the October 1944 edition of Fortune magazine. Now, this is just before the war is over. Just before the war is over. And William B. Benton, he, he uh, founded uh, Benton and Bowles, which is a major ad agency in the United States throughout the middle of the 20th century. And... You know, keep in mind, we had just experienced 15 years of depression and war. And Americans were worried that if the war, when the war ended, that we'd go back into the depression. Because the war was this enormous economic stimulus. I mean, you know, the federal government was pouring hundreds in today's dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars into war material. And when I think it was about 700,000 men came home from, from World War II at the end of the war, And, uh, you know, there was concern that they would just be unemployed. The unemployment rate would jack back up and we'd be thrown back into a depression. So Benton writes, today, victory is our purpose. Tomorrow, our goal will be jobs, peacetime production, high living standards and opportunity. And in fact, that's what they did, as Leonhardt points out. CEOs took pay packages that, you know, they were making 10, 15, 20, at the most 30 times what their employees were making. Which... Today, you know, when CEOs are making 10,000 times what their employees are making, it just seems like, whoa, they did that? Really? Yeah, they did that for the better part of 50 years, 40 years. Middle, and, and the result of this was that middle class income rose because the people at the top, by the way, one of the reasons why they were taking low, low pay packages was because after they made about the equivalent of $3 million in today's dollars, their top tax rate went up to 95%. And, and, or 91%, I guess it was. And the result of that was that throughout the 1950s and 1960s, and even the very early 1970s, the wages, the income, and the wealth of average working people was increasing faster than the top 1%. I mean, they, they were all going up, but the middle was growing the fastest. In other words, income inequality was actually declining as a result of that high tax rate. And the economy boomed. I mean, it just absolutely boomed. And then came Reaganomics. 
The only people you should worry about are the stockholders. Forget about the community. Forget about the, you know, uh, the, the customer. Forget about your impact on, on, the, on the nation. Forget, forget about your responsibility to the institution of the company itself. You can collapse it. You can sell it. You can, you can you know, suck it dry. doesn't matter. Just maximize the value for your shareholders, the investor class, the millionaires and billionaires. That's, that's your only job. And to do that, you need to, you need to lobby for deregulation. You need to cut taxes. You need to have a union-free workplace. And you have to reduce wages and keep that minimum wage as low as you possibly can. And, you know, that, that was Reaganomics. And since 1979 to today, median weekly earnings have grown a miserly one-tenth of one percent a year. And in fact, uh, you know, American, uh, the, the, Leonhardt writes, the typical American family today has a lower net worth than the typical family did 20 years ago. Life expectancy, shockingly, has fallen in this last decade. We are in the 40-something year of Reaganomics. Right? 80, 90, oh, it's uh, 38 years, 37 years of Reaganomics. And it has devastated the middle class, the working class in the United States. And it continues to devastate our economy. some context here. What was the state of the labor movement at the time? What kind of political forces were there um, in American society was labor? Were they a prominent power? Labor was a prominent power in 1981. Um, When the air traffic controllers went out on strike um, 33 years ago yesterday on August 3rd, 1981, the labor movement was still seen as a central force uh, in American government and politics. Both parties, Republican and Democrat, Uh, saw labor that way. Um, It was an important moment in American history, though, because Ronald Reagan was in the first months, really, still of his presidency. He'd been inaugurated in January 1981, and he was in the middle of rolling out what we call the Reagan Revolution. And Reagan wanted to really turn back the clock, you might say, to um, an approach to American government and politics that was pre-New Deal. Um, and part of that meant reorganizing uh, the relationship between government and the labor movement. The PATCO strike happened at this important turning point in American history, and it, it left a very profound legacy because, as you say, Ronald Reagan first threatened those strikers to return to work within 48 hours of their walkout. And when they did not, he fired them. Not only did he fire them, he permanently replaced them. And with that action, he sent a powerful message that uh, many employers, even in the private sector, acted upon after that. And it was a period of getting tough with the union movement that really marked a a profoundly important turning point. It kind of speaks to something that I think a lot of people don't know about is that Paco actually supported his candidacy as well as Republican candidate Nixon at the time. Let's actually first, though, roll a clip about what he did in terms of standing up to the unions and, and what he had to say about the strike at the time. They are in violation of the law. And if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. 
So we just heard Ronald Reagan say that they will be ter- terminated. Uh, Joseph, can you break down for us? Why did PACO even support Reagan's candidacy? Well, it's a it's a long story in a way. I'll, I'll quickly summarize it. But first, let me go to something Elliot said. This union had been uh, attempted to be formed as early as 1960. It wasn't actually formed until 1968. Shortly after that, Richard Nixon was elected. And in the first years of PATCO trying to establish itself as a federal union, it dealt with the Republican president, Nixon. And what it found is that um, the Nixon administration in the early 1970s was prepared to make deals with unions uh, in order to improve its standing, looking forward to running for re-election in 1972. And PATCO was able to get some concessions from Nixon that led PATCO leaders to endorse Nixon in 1972. Uh, They actually got their first contract with the federal government under that Republican president. So when Ronald Reagan ran in 1980, PATCO already had a history of being able to negotiate with presidents from both parties. Um, Reagan, of course, opposed the incumbent Jimmy Carter in the 1980 election. And Elliott came to work uh, and worked his first years uh, as an air traffic controller during the the, uh, Carter administration. Carter was not beloved by air traffic controllers. And his FAA was a very, very tough negotiator with PADCO. It did not concede a lot of the major issues that Elliott just brought up. And so PADCO basically went to both candidates in both parties and said, you know, who's going to help us the most? And actually, Reagan reached out to PATCO. Uh, He wanted a few unions to endorse his candidacy. He saw the air traffic controllers as a union that he could work with. Most controllers were military veterans. Um, Many of them were socially conservative. And he felt if any union could be brought into the Republican tent, maybe PATCO would be that union. So he and PATCO basically worked out a deal, and he promised that he would do what he could for the union uh, in their negotiation when it came up in 1981. So it was a deep irony that PATCO did endorse Reagan in 1980. Reagan won. PATCO expected big returns from that endorsement, but when the negotiation actually unfolded in 1981. They were deeply disappointed. They decided to strike. But that was a bridge too far for Reagan. He was not going to tolerate a strike. And that's what led to that uh, terrible conflict. Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, they're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look, if all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. 
All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself, and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash left. You point out in a piece you wrote for Salon in 2014... Quote, after Ford died in 2006, Wall Street Journal columnist Peggy Noonan went so far as to say that President Ford, and now I'm quoting her, threw himself on a grenade to protect the country from shame. And he did it because he thought it would help America to move on. And in some sense, it did. No? Well, here we are. Is America healed? I mean, you know, kind of the proof is in the pudding, right? I think that one of the problems with that reasoning is that future bad actors in the White House realized that they could get away with crimes. The very next Republican president and his White House decided that they could break the laws with impunity. That's Iran-Contra. Can you just recap for us what we know happened in Iran-Contra and what the illegal activity was? Yeah, sure. Congress passed a law. It was called the Boland Amendment. And Ronald Reagan signed it that America could not pass on money to this underground army that was trying to overthrow the Nicaraguan government. And basically, a group of people led by a gentleman named Oliver North, who's a revered and respected figure on the right now, set up an operation in which they basically raised money by arranging to sell missile parts to Iran. Basically, their proxies in Lebanon, where there was a civil war going on, had taken a series of American hostages. And it was often the case that after we sold them the missiles they wanted, they would just keep the hostages anyway, or take more hostages. I mean, it's sort of like a breathtaking foreign policy Rube Goldberg machine. Do this thing over here to make this thing happen over there. I'm actually astonished they were able to carry it out. And Ronald Reagan actually testified that he didn't have anything to do with the planning of this, he claimed. But he said when he heard it, he thought it was a neat idea, quote unquote, killing two birds with one stone, getting hostages out, supposedly, and fighting communism. Because, you know, his public policy was that Russia was going to use Nicaragua as a base to invade America. He was quite explicit about that. So Reagan said he had nothing to do with this. Was there ever good enough evidence to really link him to Iran-Contra? Well, the real wackiness of this story, you know, people of a certain age will remember this, was that this guy, Oliver North, received immunity to testify. And in one of the most astonishing spectacles, he testified in his Marine dress uniform made no apologies whatsoever, said he was, you know, just a loyal soldier fighting for freedom. And in fact, there was one incident where the actual Justice Department investigators went into his office while he was shredding and asked for documents. And they're like, what are you doing? We're from the Justice Department. And he said something like, look, you're doing your job and I'm doing mine. 
So you shredded some documents because the Attorney General's people were coming in over the weekend? I do not preclude that as part of what was shredded. I do not preclude that as being a possibility. Not at all. And the fascinating thing about his explanation was that he didn't think he was admitting to wrongdoing. He thought he was admitting to this great stride for freedom and dignity and liberty, you know, fighting the Soviet empire. That's kind of a cognitive pattern on the right, that they're fighting for a transcendent good against a transcendent evil. We see this pattern repeating again and again. Richard Nixon saying, if the president does it, it's not illegal. Or, you know, Dick Cheney saying that the vice president's office is a fourth branch of government and the Constitution doesn't quite apply to it in the same way. Let's zoom in on the role of Dick Cheney. In the Ford administration, he's the chief of staff. By the time Iran-Contra rolls around, he is a member of Congress. He is part of the committee that's investigating Iran-Contra. The conclusion reached by the majority is that basically the Reagan White House was guilty, guilty, guilty. And the committee that the minority, the Republicans put together, said he was innocent, innocent, innocent. Cheney basically moved along this theory that had been kind of long in the gestation that later became described by legal scholars as the unitary executive theory. So here's that quote from the report that Dick Cheney helped to author. This is a quote that you sent me. Quote, Chief executives are given the responsibility for acting to respond to crises or emergencies. To the extent that the Constitution and laws are read narrowly, as Jefferson wished, the chief executive will, on occasion, feel duty-bound to assert monarchical notions of prerogative that will permit him to exceed the law. Right. You will almost expect a trumpet fanfare <laughs> as the king arrives in his raiment, you know, yeah. Monarchical notions of prerogative. Translate that for me. It's a bit of a, a gaslight because it comes from Jefferson, you know, most anti-monarchical, most democratic of the founders. I mean, it basically means how dare you tell the president that he couldn't defy laws about who the United States could fund when it came to military aid. Do you happen to remember where you were or what you were doing when you first read that quote? Yeah, I saw it a couple of years ago. And I was like, how the heck did I not know that Dick Cheney was responsible for this utterance? I mean, in a way, it indicts the media <laughs> for not digging up this astonishing thing. Although people know about this minority report and people have written at length about the evolution of Cheney's ideas about the unitary executive the word monarchical should raise anyone's hackles when it has anything to do with the United States Constitution. At a press conference on August 12, 1986, U.S. President Ronald Reagan said, The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. Reagan summarized his long-held suspicions about the effectiveness and morality of the role of government in people's lives by saying, as you just heard, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. This Reaganism certainly sums up his views on government, even though, as I'll show later, the formulation of this quote and sentiment is hugely problematic, and the quote reappears whenever politicians, in the United States anyway, propose new or expanded government, economic, or social programs. We're seeing it being employed now in reaction to the Biden administration's infrastructure funding proposals. 
Reagan-worshipping pundits and media outlets trot this out at such times, investing it with gravity and inherent truth as if it came from the Bible or the U.S. Constitution. Government and government programs make things worse, they argue, and hurt people. You're right to cower in fear whenever the government comes to the rescue, they assert, with all the confidence that comes from being backed up by Reagan. But where does this statement actually come from? Like so many famous quotes, it was not coined by the person who gets credit for it, in this case, Ronald Reagan. Researchers here at the Buzzkill Institute, as well as heavyweight quote experts, such as Josh Shapiro at the Yale Book of Quotations and Garson O'Toole, which is the pen name of former Johns Hopkins computer scientist Dr. Gregory O'Sullivan at QuoteInvestigator.com, have studied this extensively. And they've reached the conclusion that it appeared in the mid to late 1970s as a bit of folksy wisdom sprouting from places like Reader's Digest and humorous columns in newspapers. It may have started as a joke running around the military or large organizations in the 1960s. And the joke went like this, quote, the sentence, we are here from headquarters to help you, usually means that your division or part of the organization is about to be given the axe, end quote. But it first started to appear in print in 1973 in a crop production conference report written by the Crop Quality Council, an American farming organization. And I'm not making that up. According to this council, the crop marketplace was performing very well in the early 1970s, but that, quote, the long arm of government intervention, end quote, was making the future analysis of crop prices uncertain. That prompted the report's writer to state, and I quote, I would like to tell you an appropriate story. The three most unbelieved statements in the world are, one, the check is in the mail, two, of course I'll love you in the morning like I do tonight, and three, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you, end quote. It seems clear from the tone of this witticism that the phrase had been around at least for a little while. Senator Edmund Muskie, Democrat from Maine, was reported to have said to a meeting of the U.S. Conference of Mayors in Chicago in early 1976, the three most common lies are, I put your check in the mail yesterday, I gave at the office, and I'm from the federal government, and I'm here to help you. U.S. Representative John Russelot, Republican from Southern California, said the same thing in May, calling these promises the three greatest fabrications of all time. Conservative commentator and columnist George F. Will said essentially the same thing in July 1976. The same basic idea was uttered during testimony before the U.S. Senate when, when they were considering, quote, the extension of the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act. And it appeared the next year during hearing on, quote, economic problems of the elderly in Mississippi in the U.S. House of Representatives. It had clearly become a well-worn observation in political and government circles by the time Reagan said it when discussing government support to farmers during that 1986 press conference you heard at the beginning. And it appeared throughout the 1990s and into the 21st century, especially when right-wing commentators referred to Reagan's political ideology. Controversial writer and <coughs> friend of the show, Dinesh D'Souza, used it in his 1997 book, Ronald Reagan, How an Ordinary Man Became an Extraordinary Leader. But I want to take this discussion a little further and talk about the meaning and utility of this sentiment. The most terrifying words are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. It was and is 
a moronic and childish thing to say and believe. That's right. I'm saying that Reagan was being moronic and childish when he said it with a grin, that George Will, who with his PhD should know better, was moronic and childish when he wrote it in a column, and that the politicians and commentators who are employing it now are being moronic and childish. It's moronic because even 10 seconds of actual thought makes you realize that being, quote, from the government could mean being from the fire department, from child protective services. In the American context, it could mean from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency in times of natural disaster, and so many more. It meant the first responders who saved hundreds during the attacks on September 11th and often gave their lives trying to save more. Are we to be terrified when an emergency medical technician uses the jaws of life to extract us from a wrecked automobile that's crushing us? And perhaps most appropriately, given Reagan's worship of the military, are we supposed to have been terrified when American armed forces help stop a genocidal maniac like Hitler? And I'm not even including the seemingly endless government corporate bailouts, economic incentives and giveaways to companies to put offices and factories in certain areas, land grants to private institutions, and the ludicrously generous tax breaks given to large corporations and rich individuals in the United States. These are exactly the kinds of terrifying government help that Reagan championed during his administration, and that created some of the largest deficits and biggest federal debt levels in our history. Of course, there have been lots of times when governments, including the U.S. government, have done terrible and indeed inexcusable things, allowing slavery and child labor to exist and thrive, helping to wipe out Native Americans, and so many more. But to lump all government, and by extension societal, attempts and improving people's lives as terrifying oppression is not only historically accurate, but politically dangerous. Countries and societies have always employed mutual aid in order to survive, literally survive. It has worked sometimes in various ways and has not worked other times in other ways. But to abandon the idea is to give in to anarchy. And that's moronic thinking. It's childish because, as I've implied, it's an overly simplistic way of looking at the world, how the world operates, and how we might try to make it operate better. As we keep saying on this show, the supposed wisdom contained in one-liners from famous and iconic people almost always overlook, and sometimes they steamroll, the complexities of social, political, and historical realities. If you have a one-line answer for everything, which Reagan almost always did, you're using schoolyard, it's all one way or the other, na 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 rhetoric to address, you know, serious, grown-up and complicated problems. You've spent multiple decades studying the right wing in America. So you're a good Multiple person to, to talk to about this. And uh, thankfully, you're still sane. Uh, and specifically, Reagan, in your in your most recent book, uh, talk about how Reagan specifically targeted people with authoritarian tendencies and how we can see a lot of those shades, um, or I guess the manifestations or the multiplications in what we saw in the Capitol insurrection uh, now six months ago. Yes, if I said to you that the Reagan presidential campaign 
1980 targeted people with authoritarian tendencies, you might accuse me of, you know, slandering Ronald Reagan. But in this particular case, I literally have a historical document in which they pretty much say, let's target people with authoritarian tendencies, right? So the, the document in question, actually, which I read about in Advertising Age magazine, in an article uh, about his pollster, Richard Worthlin, uh, in an article about how he uh, strategized for the Reagan campaign and won Advertising Age's ad man of the year, which is kind of goofy and interesting in itself, um, one of the things that one of uh, this guy Worthlin's aides told the reporter was that Reagan supporters, quote, obtain high scores on authoritarianism and a low score on egalitarianism. Uh, and then they also discover basically that European ethnic groups living in large cities followed the same pattern. And hence, they were a prime target of conversion. So, and this is a quote, uh, that Reagan launched his campaign with quite highly visible visits to such neighborhoods. Uh, so literally, they're like, let's find people who, you know, are Democrats, right? Then de Democrats then, and that we can turn into Republicans. And the way we're going to find them is to find these pockets where people are most likely to be authoritarians. And these were places like South Boston, where mm -hmm. there's this terrible controversy over busing, where people basically fought the police to keep their kids from going to school with black people. Or Cicero, Illinois, which is a formerly all-white suburb of Chicago, where Martin Luther King was warned by the county sheriff that he, if he held a housing march there, he'd be committing a suicidal act. You know, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was the most segregated city in America, which was kind of undergoing a very big reckoning when it came to police violence against African-Americans. And this is literally, you know, where Ronald Reagan, you know, we know that Ronald Reagan opened his um, general election campaign, right, in the summer of 1980 in Neshoba County, which is another great, you know, example of a place where you'd find a lot of authoritarians, because, of course, this was where Goodman, Cheney, and Schorner were lynched in 1964 for registering African-Americans to vote. But this was actually the opening of his primary campaign. And uh, so that's what they did. And I found something else that was very interesting in this article, and it shows basically in the most elegant way I've ever been able to come up with, because this is a not really a complicated concept, but I've never really found a really elegant way to kind of a, a hammer to, to really kind of get this across to people. Uh, the devolution of the Republican party from Reagan to Trump. So yeah, it's bad enough that a political party is saying, let's find thugs, you know, so we can, you know, basically turn them into Republicans so we can win a presidential election. That's really nasty in itself. But one of, the, the aide who basically explained this to the reporter said, well, Ronald Reagan said he didn't want to do this anymore. So we stopped, you know, going to these places. And you know, I don't really know what he was talking about because, you know, they, you know, never, their, their appeal to authoritarians never really ebbed. But what's fascinating about that is, you know, this expression of shame, right? This very admission that what they were doing was something that they kind of shouldn't have been doing. And I think that the difference between the Ronald Reagan generation that was kind of uh, prospecting for authoritarians, and by that you can include the, you know, George H.W. Bush generation, the George W. Bush generation, the Mitt Romney generation, basically all Reagan Republicans up to, to Donald Trump, uh, was Donald Trump kind of rips off the mask and says, well, we're going to do this without shame. You know, this is the guy who 
walk, walks into his, you know, debut as a presidential campaign and says, you know, Mexico is sending their rapists and the Middle East too, right? Um, so what we have is kind of this um, subtle, double-faced appeal to authoritarians that can kind of hide what it does and look respectable to this, this outright naked appeal to authoritarians. And here we are. And kind of the thesis I, I, I you know, uh, pursue after making that point in this little article of mine is, well, if you build your political power on a naked appeal to authoritarians, of course things are going to get out of hand. And I tell a little bit about that history as I see it. But part of, you know, the misunderstanding about that is, and so well said by you, is a seemingly deliberate sanitizing and misunderstanding of that history, right? Yeah, Where we it's get into the media piece, right? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it's not just the media. Uh, I really do think that there are a lot of Democrats from that era um, of the Reagan era who kind of want to believe something different about that era of conservative dominance, or at least have like some sort of shell-shocked PTSD colloquially. Um, You know, I I was not alive during the Reagan era. And what's been told to me is just, oh, he appealed to working class whites of Italian descent, of Irish optimism. Right. And so, I mean, that's just so counterfactual. And so that's, I'm assuming that's a lot of what you write about in your book and what you, you talk about uh, a little bit or, or significantly, but not as in depth in, as in your book, I, I presume um, in, in this piece in New York magazine. I mean, if you could just touch upon that, sure. that, that chasm in understanding. Sure. Uh, Chris Matthews of uh, formerly of MSNBC wrote a whole book about what a wonderful, warm, rich, relationship, these two sons of Irish immigrants, you know, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, you know, had for each other because they had, you know, scotch after work and, you know, were civil and could pursue, pursue negotiations. And of course, the reason Ronald Reagan pursued negotiations with, with Tip O'Neill was because Democrats had lots of power, right? He did it because he had to. So the answer to that story is, you know, well, if you want, you know, to have a more civil politics where Republicans have to um, respect us, the answer is beat Republicans, right? It's not be nice to Republicans, right? So this whole idea is, you know, yeah, this sentimental fantasy. And, you know, there's a big, there's a big, you know, because we are a country that's, you know, has lots of structural nastiness built into it, I think a lot of all kinds of elites, whether they're media elites or political elites, kind of see this part of their job ideologically as kind of tamping down the the reality, right, of um, just how ugly, violent, you know, hateful a lot of our fellow Americans are, right? Uh, And, you know, it's important to be kind of unflinching and understanding the country that we are citizens of. We've just heard clips today starting with Make Me Smart explaining Reaganomics and the impact it had on even future Democratic presidents. 
On the media, looked at Reagan's racism from when we used to make racist policy but not talk about it publicly as much. The Tom Hartman program explained horse and sparrow economics, or what I like to call eat shit and be grateful economics. The Real News looked at the famous instance of Reagan firing striking air traffic controllers. On the media, dove into Iran-Contra and the arguments made by Dick Cheney that ended up reverberating through the George W. Bush presidency. The Professor Buzzkill History Podcast analyzed one of Reagan's most famous quotes about the dangers of the government, and the Majority Report discussed Reagan's explicit targeting of authoritarian voters. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Why Is This Happening, looking at the Republican politics of aggrievement from Reagan to Trump in the absence of any successful policies to run on. It might have something to do with the fact that to kind of tell a credible story about the world from, you know, a kind of reactionary standpoint, you can't really tell it in an optimistic way. Because all these right-wing policy fixes have been tried and failed. And the United States of Anxiety examined American politics through the lens of presidential regimes or eras rather than merely terms. Ronald Reagan was the, the last transformational leader who inaugurated a new regime. And since 1980, we've been living in the shadow of that. If you remember, you know, Bill Clinton declared the, the era of big government over. Uh, Barack Obama came into office with uh, there was a lot of high expectations of transformation and very quickly discovered that the rules of Reaganism were still in play. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, just a quick story about the first time I had a debate about Ronald Reagan after learning that he was, in fact, bad. And this was... Back almost 20 years ago now, I had only just really started listening to political talk radio, so I probably only knew that liking Reagan was wrong, but couldn't really hold my own in a debate yet. And I was talking with my girlfriend's grandfather, and he was probably the perfect age to have fallen in love with Reagan for all the reasons that people did. And then after falling in love with him, 20 years after the fact, he tried to explain to me why Reagan was so good, and he focused entirely on how he made people feel. He explained that people were feeling down at the time, and Reagan had a way of making them feel proud of their country again for the first time in a while. And it, it was the look in his eye that really got me. He was so earnest, you could see almost the pain that he remembered from the time before Reagan and, and the sort of sense of relief as he described the comfort that Reagan's words brought to a hurting nation. And so I looked at him, this, this kindly old man who was very nice to me, who loved his country and wanted nothing more than for others to love it too. And I screamed in his face, facts don't care about your feelings. And then I called him a cock. And from that day forward until the day he passed away at a ripe old age, he voted Democratic. 
Okay, the end of the story isn't true, but he really did say that Reagan was good because he made people feel good. And as for the Republican Party, remember, this was like 2003, 2004, so we had just invaded Iraq. Things were not looking great. Uh, as for the Republican Party, he said, they're the good guys. That's why he supported them. They made him feel good, and they're the good guys. So who knows? Maybe we really were working with similar levels of information after all. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of the Left Discord community to discuss the show or the news or basically anything else. Links to join are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.